Good morning. Hopefully you have your Bibles. If you do, I encourage you to pull them out and uh, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be finishing up our series going through the book of 2 Corinthians today. Uh, next week we're going to be starting a new series, uh, Defining Grace Fellowship. And so it'll be a, a good, it'll be a short series, uh, just a three-week series. And then we'll be going into um, a new series called One. And you'll find out more information about that as we get uh, closer to it. Um, C.S. Lewis, the, the, the late famed apologist and author, said this. He said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. I think that's really true. Uh, Leith Anderson, he's, he was a pastor for a long time at a uh, sister church in Minnesota uh, called Wooddale. Leith Anderson, uh, many years ago, was on a mission trip to Russia at a time when Russia didn't allow, you know, Bibles or Christianity or any of those kinds of things. And he was on this mission trip, him and a group of people, and they couldn't get a direct flight to Russia, so they ended up stopping in a, in a neighboring country, and, and while they were there, they were going to stay overnight, and they were out to dinner uh, the night before they were going to then fly in to Russia. And as they were out to, while they were out to dinner, they were approached by some people, and, and the people approached them and said, hey, uh, I don't know how they found out, but they maybe overheard a conversation or something and said, hey, will you bring these Bibles into Russia with you? Will you smuggle them in? And, uh, and, and Leith, he, he, kind of, he responded and said, no, 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 that's, Ill, that's illegal. We can't, we can't do that. And, and uh, they said, okay, well, maybe you can pray about it and uh, see what God tells you. And, uh, you know, nothing like that to convict you, right? <laughs> And so Leith and the team, they, they went back to the hotel, and, and they began praying about it, and then all of a sudden they went, look, you know, we could probably smuggle a few Bibles in. It probably wouldn't be that hard. We probably wouldn't get in trouble if it's just a few Bibles. We'll do that. And so however the, the connections were made and the communication took place, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do it. Well, they showed up the next morning, and it wasn't just like, here's three or four Bibles for you, here's three or four Bibles for you, and here's three or four Bibles for you. It was like, here's an entire library of Bibles and books and all these things, and we want you to get them all into Russia. And so they went from maybe having a couple of Bibles that they could maybe explain away to now we're packing our suitcases with Bibles, and we're flying into a place that at the time, Bibles weren't just illegal, but if you got caught with Bibles, like, you could be thrown in prison and tortured kind of stuff. Like, all of a sudden, this belief that the Word of God was, was, was valuable and everybody ought to have it and that everybody needs to hear the gospel no matter where they are, no matter what situation they're in, all of a sudden, the rubber meets the road right here at this moment. And so they began to pack and to figure out how to put all of these books and these Bibles into their suitcases and into their luggage. And, and they did. They crammed it all, they crammed it all into, into, their, into their suitcases and they figured out how to get them all in. But then they actually have to fly into Russia, right? And I don't know if you've flown, many of you have flown into other countries, but sometimes uh, what you have to do, and it depends on where you fly, but, but you have to fill out some paperwork. And basically they ask you a bunch of questions. They say things like, you know, are you bringing in any like fruits or vegetables or, you know, those kinds of things. But then on this particular one, they said, are you bringing in any literature? And so, so, so they, were, they were kind of torn. Like, well, how do we, what do we say? Are you do, if we, the truth is we are. So do we, do we say yes? Do we, do we mark no? And do we lie and say, well, we're not, but even though we are, because that doesn't sound right either. And so what they decided to do is just leave it blank. We're just going to leave it blank. You know, as Leaf describes it, the Holy Spirit led us to leave it blank. Whether it was the Holy Spirit or I just don't want to answer the question, whatever it was, they left it blank. 
But you can imagine the pressure. All of a sudden, they're going through customs. And going through customs can be very intimidating, right? I mean, you are in this place, and people are, they're looking you up and down. They're trying to figure out, you know, if you're a good guy, if you're a bad guy, if you're going to do something illegal, and whatever it is. They're trying to decide whether they should allow you into their country or not. And, and they're going through customs knowing we're breaking the law. Not only are we breaking the law, we're breaking a law that at that time and in that place, that could end us up in jail, maybe tortured, you know, who knows, maybe even someday, death. Can you imagine the sweat? Can you feel the sweat building up on your, on your brow? Can you, can you feel your hands start to shake as you begin to walk up? And not only do they ask you the questions on the paper, but then they begin to ask you the questions verbally. So now it's not just, did, what box did I check? But what am I going to say when they say, are you bringing any Bibles into this country? What am I going to say? That moment as the pressure builds and your heartbeat races and your blood pressure rises and all of those things are happening as you're bringing these Bibles, knowingly breaking the law into Russia. Imagine for a moment going through customs. Well, the question comes to us here today. What do we believe about Jesus? And do we believe it enough, not just to risk death? Because quite frankly, death is almost the easy way, isn't it? Say, oh, you're going to kill me? Great, I'll be with Jesus. Right? But to risk your lifestyle, to risk living this life continually for the rest of it in a way that glorifies and honors him, in a way that proclaims to the world, I believe and trust in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus enough to do that? Because to me, that's much harder than risking death. Here's the truth. When we receive new life, it means that our entire base of operation shifted. The way we think about things, the way we go about things, the way we approach the world, everything shifted. The old life and the new life. It's called new life for a reason because it's different from the old life. The old life and the new life, if they look the same, if they feel the same, then you don't have new life. You have the old life, you're just calling it something different. New life changes us. It changes how we think. It changes how we talk. It changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we, how we view others. It changes the foundational belief system we have. The world says believe in yourself, but Jesus says believe in him. It's a different kind of thing. It's a different kind of life. Well, Paul challenges the church in Corinth in chapter 13. And he's preparing them for his visit, and he's wrapping up his letter. And he starts in verse 1 by saying this. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness. Yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him. Yet God's power will live with him in our dealing with you. Paul had lived in weakness, but he had lived according to God's power. 
And we're going to see that we too need to do that very same thing. As a matter of fact, I would put it this way. Living in weakness means living in God's power. You see, the, 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 at that time in Corinth, the culture was this. That you had to get everything that was weak in you, you had to drive it out of you. There could be no weakness. You had to be strong. You had to present yourself strong. You had to, you had to show yourself with, without any weaknesses. As a matter of fact, our culture is a lot like that today, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of, I mean, we were watching, whether it's, the, whether it's football teams getting ready for, for football season, or, or if you happen to be a fan of a good baseball team, I'm sorry for those of you who are native to Colorado, but if you happen to be a fan of a good baseball team, you're thinking about the playoffs, and you're thinking about how do you, how do you get rid of the weaknesses in the team, and then strengthen your team? How do, you, how do you overcome the weaknesses, right? Or if it's a football team, and you're getting ready for the season, you're trying to evaluate, you know, who is the strongest in every position so that we can get rid of the weaknesses, so that we can be strong. Or if it's the presidential race and you're looking at that, everybody's trying to show that none of them have any weaknesses and that they're all strong in every way so that you'll vote for them. Like, that's our culture, right? It doesn't matter where you look. The idea is that you get rid of the weak and you embrace the strong. And yet the gospel tells us that we are weak. And Paul, in this case, tells, says, basically, I have, I have been weak. And as we've gone from, from week to week and chapter to chapter in 2 Corinthians, Paul has over and over again said, said look, I, I am weak, but it's in my weakness that God's power is shows. He says, look, I, I'm weak. I've been, I've been beaten. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked. I've been all of these things, right? And, the, and, his, and his critics in Corinth were basically saying, look how weak Paul is. That was one of their criticisms. Look how weak he is. He's not strong. How can he have the power of God in him? But power's retort, or Paul's retort again and again is, yes, I am weak, but I live by the power of God. As a matter of fact, Christ, Christ was weak in the, when he died, but he lived by the power of God. And we begin to think about that. And we go, wait a minute. You just said Christ was weak in his death. Well, that's what Paul said. Right? And it, it was in his weakness or, or from his weakness or out of his weakness that, that Christ died. Now you begin to think, well, what does that mean? Well, here's what, here's what Paul's talking about. The God, the eternal divine, son of God, existing for eternity past and will exist for eternity future. He was there with God in the beginning, right? We read about that in John chapter 1, right? In the, in, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, Right? He was there, he was with God, he was God, and then we read, you know, in Colossians, we, we talk, it says that all things were created by him, and for him, and through him, so he is powerful. He's the eternal divine son of God. Everything that is, is at his fingertips. He has all the power that is. He's powerful, but he took on human flesh took on him in his flesh. And, and Paul talks about, in his letter to the Philippians, he, he talks about how, how the eternal divine son of God emptied himself and took on human flesh. He gave up that divine privilege. He became weak. It was in that weakness or out of that weakness that Christ died. But he lives and he continues to live by the power of God. As a matter of fact, the resurrection that he experienced, that we have witnesses to, was by the power of God. See, sometimes we think that weakness and power don't go together. But in fact, they, they do. What's interesting about this text is he's, he begins to, in, in chapter 13, put the church in Corinth on trial a little bit. 
he, can't, he actually references back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, and he, and he says, uh, and that verse says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's doing that to say, look, church of Corinth, I'm putting you on trial. We're going back to the law here. I'm putting you on trial. I want you to understand this, that, that, that you're on trial. The, this question of weakness and power and whether I am, I am being used of God or not, now you're going to have to answer for it too, because this whole time through this whole letter, what has Paul been doing? He's been coming and he's saying, he's saying, my apostleship is legitimate. Over and over again, he's come to his defense. He's, he's circled away from it, and then he'd come back to it. And then he'd circle away from it, and then he'd come back to it. And he kept going, no, I am legitimate. I have established myself as an apostle, called by God. Here's my fruit. You are my fruit, church in Corinth. And he's defended himself over and over and over again. He's applying this evidential rule to church life in general. This is important too, by the way. Sometimes in all of life, and church life is no different in this respect, we hear things, people say things, people make accusations, right? We have rumor mills, which, which by the way, if you, if you hear something that's rumorish, like just dead end it, right? Like dead end it. That's, it doesn't benefit anybody, anybody. Just dead end it. Put an end to it. I mean, this is part of what Paul is doing is he's taking this, this rule, of ev- this evidential rule, and he's applying it to church life. He's like, why, why must an accusation require two or three witnesses? Because there's rumor mills. Because people say things. Because they heard somebody say something, and maybe they misunderstood it, or maybe that person was speaking inaccurately, or whatever, and they just spread it. And so Paul's saying, look, there has to be witnesses, not only to these, not only to accusations, but even to the good things, right? In other words, if we're going to have an, an evidentiary hearing, which is kind of what Paul's setting up here for the church in Corinth, there has to be witnesses. And so he's setting up this context in which he's saying, who are your witnesses, right? What about this evidence of our new life in Christ? He's saying, you have new life in Christ? Where's the evidence? Show me the evidence. That's a good question for us, isn't it? If we say we have a new life in Christ, there ought to be evidence of it. It cannot be just a language thing. We can't just run around saying, oh, look, I have new life. But then when people examine us, when people witness us, when people observe us and how we live, they can't then say, I don't see any new life. I see the, sa- the new is the same as the old, the new title. So what about this evidence of our new life? Could we be convicted? Could I be convicted of living according to the power of God? I want to read these verses again, verse 3 and 4. Since you're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, this is Paul speaking, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness. That's what I just talked about, right? Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by, by God's power Likewise, when you see a word like that, pay attention. In other words, likewise, there's an application starting to be made here. We are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. In other words, Paul stops and he says, he says, yeah, Jesus was crucified in weakness, but he lives by power. We too, as Galatians 2.20 talks about, right? Our old self is crucified, yet we now live a new life by the power of God. Our new life isn't by our power. 
There's a fundamental difference between the self-help books of the world, the self-help speakers and, and, and podcasts and whatever, that come along and say, here's how you be successful in life. And what are the things they say? They say things like, you have to believe in yourself. You have to have confidence. You have to, you're like, all, everything is about you. It's about you. It's about you. You can do it. Believe and achieve. Whatever, whatever the phrase is, it's all about believing in you. And the gospel comes along, and the gospel says, I am sorry, but you don't cut it. You can believe in yourself all you want. Guess what you're going to do? Fall short. The gospel is a very countercultural message, isn't it? It's very countercultural. Paul comes along and says, and says, you are weak, but in your weakness, God's power shows up. It's a different message. The world tells you believe in yourself. The world tells you have confidence. The world tells you all of these things. You've got to do all these things to be, to be successful. Jesus comes along and says, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Take up your cross and follow me. Embrace your weakness because God show up, shows up in our weakness. Over and over again, the message of the gospel is countercultural. Here's what I've noticed about everyone who believes in their self. Eventually, they fail. But the gospel, for those who believe in it, never fails. It never fails. Our old life is crucified with Christ. But now we live in the power of Christ. The question is, do we really live that way? Would witnesses of our life say we live that way? Would people outside the church say we live differently from the world? Would they see the difference in how we live and how we speak and how we behave? Would they, would they see the difference? The question becomes this. What does it mean to live in the weakness of Christ? Well, think about Paul's life for a minute. Paul, Paul comes along and he's, he's, he's already given his resume, right? You can go, go back and listen to that from a couple weeks ago. Two, three, was it two, three weeks ago? He's already given his resume. He's already said, look, I, I've got all these things. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And, you know, I started under, under Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers. And, and I've got all these things, right? I'm a, I, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, all this stuff, right? I've got all these credentials, but that's not what he boasted. He says, I'm going to boast in my, in my weakness. I'm going to live in my weakness. And then he goes on. And even in that chapter, he goes, he starts out with that. And then he goes down and he says, he says but look at all of the things that would be perceived as weakness by the world, shipwrecked, beaten, whipped, all these different things, thrown in prison many times, all of these different things. It looks like I'm a failure, but in the midst of that, the power of God rang out, and because of that, because of God working in me, church in Corinth, that's why you exist. Because God worked in my weakness. What does it mean to live in Christ's weakness? Well, what did, what did, what did Jesus do? He gave up his divine privilege. He gave up that which rightfully belonged to him. He gave up the eternal son of God privileges. Now, he never ceased to become that, right? He, he, he remained the eternal son of God, but he took on human flesh and emptied himself of those divine privileges and lived among us. He became weak. As a matter of fact, he became sin itself so that when he died on the cross, we might receive his righteousness and our sin would be covered. 
He became weak so that the power of God might be shown to the world. That's what it means to live in weakness. It means sacrifice. It means giving up. Here's the thing. So many preachers come along, and, and I just can't help these super apostles and, that came along in Corinth and whatever, whoever they were and whatever they said, I just, every time I read 2 Corinthians, I can't help but compare them to a lot of the health and wealth gospel preachers in our day who come along and say, if you'll just believe in Jesus, you'll never be sick, you'll never be poor, you'll never experience hardship, you'll be able to drive nice cars, live in nice neighborhoods, nice gated communities, all of these things. You can have it all if you just believe. And if you, and if you don't have it all, then what's the problem? Well, you don't have a strong enough faith. Can I just tell you something? That is not Paul's experience, and I have a hard time thinking that Paul was that far off base. He wrote most of the New Testament. Was he fallible? Yes. He was, he was a fallen human being, just like the rest of us. As a matter of fact, he called himself the chief of sinners. But he never went and said, well, only if I had a little more faith in Jesus, I'd have all these things. That was never said anywhere in all of Scripture, certainly not in Paul's writing. It's not said. And I can't help but think that that's what the super apostles were coming and preaching to the church in Corinth. And some, some were falling for it. So what does it mean to live in Christ's weakness? Paul did not live a triumphant life as his critics in Corinth thought he should. He experienced hardship, persecution, and sacrifice, just like Jesus. That is what it means to live in weakness. We don't live triumphant lives by living without Without those things, Christianity was born in sacrifice and the sacrifice of Jesus himself. We continue in that legacy. That's what it means to live in weakness. You know, what, is it, what does it mean to, to live in weakness and live according to the power of God? Like Jesus, like Jesus, it is the power of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit that gives resurrection to Jesus and now to us. That's what gives us new life. It's God's power. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the resurrection of Jesus himself, and we follow in his footsteps. What does that mean? Well, one commentator put it this way. He said, where Christ is, there is a life of growing holiness. Where Christ is, there is a life of growing holiness. That's our testimony. What does it mean to live in weakness and live in power? To live in the weakness that we experience and always then in that weakness point to Jesus as our Redeemer and our Savior and say, though I am weak, He is strong. Though I fall short, Jesus covered my sin. Though I deserve punishment, Jesus took that punishment upon Himself. Every time I am weak, I get to point to the cross. Every time I fall short, I get to point to Jesus who gave me his righteousness that I can stand before God on judgment day, not holy because I am holy, but holy because Jesus granted me his righteousness. What a gift that is. Living, living in weakness means relying on and being empowered by God himself. And this leads to increasing holiness, not perfection. I want to be clear here. This is where legalism some kind, sometimes sneaks into the church, right? All of a sudden, somebody says, oh yeah, you're a follower of Jesus? Well, then you got to be perfect. 
No, 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 no. That's why Jesus died. Because we don't, we don't attain that. Jesus gives that. That's a gift he gives to us. It's not something we accomplish, right? So if you ever find yourself in a position where you begin to be judgmental towards somebody because of a sin struggle they have, stop and think about your own sin struggle and the grace that you've received. They need grace too. That's why we call ourselves Grace Fellowship, amen? No matter what kind of hardship, persecution, or strife afflicts us, we live in the power of God. In fact, Paul tells those those in Corinth that they should test or examine themselves. Starting in verse 5, he says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do not, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but, listen to this, so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. But we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. In other words, Paul looks at him and he says this. Test your new life. Test your new life. It's an okay thing to do. As a matter of fact, Paul commands us to do it. He tells, he tells, he tells the, the church of Corinth, examine yourselves in light of this. I've written this whole letter to you. I've, I've thought we've, we've dealt with some things. There's, there's these super apostles. We've dealt with some of their teachings, some of the things they're saying. I know they're attacking me personally. I've, I've defended myself in an appropriate way. I, I'm not, I am not gloating in my strength or my accomplishments, but only boasting about the power of God in my weaknesses. I come to you humble, but with authority given by God for the sake, as he says in this text, of building you up. That's my goal here, so that you may be fully redeemed, fully restored. That's the end goal here. That's why I've come. And I'm coming again. Now, before I get there, test yourself. Take some time. Examine yourselves. This, by the way, is not, Paul's not coming along and saying, he's not guilting them. He's not saying, oh, you're so horrible, look at yourselves. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, take the time. As a matter of fact, he actually affirms in them, you have new life in Christ. You're going to pass the test. He almost takes it, like, if you fail, it would be weird. It would be unusual. Like, that's not his expectation here. His expectation is not that they'll fail the test, but they'll pass the test. And as they pass the test, they'll recognize that they have new life because Jesus is in them and that they will respond appropriately in and that they will be strong because of God's power in them, God's work among them. That's what makes them strong. That's what makes them the fruit of his ministry, in fact. And so Paul comes along and he's saying, test yourselves. Take time. Examine yourselves. And Paul's done it too. He examined himself. I mean, that, he did it throughout the whole letter of 2 Corinth. So what does that, where does that leave us? That means we too need to examine ourselves. 
That's the application in this whole thing. And that's what I'm telling you, and that's what I'm telling me. We need to examine ourselves. We need to stop and to think and to reflect. Maybe even gather witnesses. Not for the sake of others so that we can point to our references, but the, for the sake of ourselves so that we can, we can ask the appropriate question and go, am I honoring and glorifying God in how I live? Am I living empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered by God, embracing my weakness and pointing to Jesus? Or am I trying to live on my own strength? Am I, am I, am I following the message of the world and trying to believe in myself? The test, I think, takes... There's three parts to it, I think, as we look at this test. The first one, and we'll put this on the screen, is this. Relationship with Jesus. Have you received new life? That's the first question you have to ask yourself. Have I received new life? Have I taken hold of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? Can I just tell you something? When you encounter God, it transforms you. It changes you. I mean, do you remember the story when Moses went up to the mountain, right? He sees God, right? And as a matter of fact, he has to put his veil, a veil over his face. And Paul, he even references a number of chapters ago in, in, this, in this book, in 2 Corinthians, right? This whole idea that, that Moses had to veil himself because people were, were, were blown away because he, he glowed, if you will. And they were like, what is this? And it was the power of God showing and shining through Moses. You don't get to encounter God and not be changed. It doesn't happen. You know, I know people that encounter God and aren't changed. Probably not. There are times when people reject God. When their reaction isn't to embrace the message of the gospel, but their reaction is to hate the message of the gospel. It does change you one way or the other. You do not get to encounter God without being changed? Have you received new life? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you decided not to believe in yourself, but to believe in the one who put himself on a cross and shed his blood so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could be justified before God, so that you could receive his righteousness? Then he went to the grave and he resurrected so that you, can, you and I can have new life. Have you done that? And if you have, it has changed you. Here's the second, second part of the test. Evidence that you have new life. Ask this question. How different are your thoughts? How different are your goals? How different are your relationships from the world around you? How have those things changed? Third question, the work of the Spirit. Are you growing in holiness and righteousness, living and exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit. Now, i got to be honest with you. As I look at these three questions, there are times when some of the questions I do pretty well and some of them not so well. It, the, the, point of, the point of the test isn't to go get, get to the end and be able to go, check, check, check. That's not the point. The point is increasing in holiness. And quite, number, number one, that, that is a, kind of a checkbox one, right? Like if you, you either have or you haven't. You've either put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ or you haven't. I hope you have. If you haven't, fix it. And all you got to do is go, Jesus, I'm trusting in you and what you did. I'm following you from now on. Amen. That's it. Super simple. But it'll transform your life. It'll completely change you for the rest of your life. So number one's kind of a checkbox. The other two, they're more like, like 
planting a seed and watching it grow. It takes time. Sometimes it's doing well, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes the circumstances around it make it difficult for it to grow, but it continues to grow. We'll continue to grow in holiness, if you will. We continue to move towards Jesus. We continue to become more and more like him. It's not a checkbox, like I got number two done, or I got number three done. It's that constant, constant submitting to the power of God in your life so that he can work for the rest of your life. It's a process. It takes time. You don't, you don't, you don't become a fully grown tree overnight. You have to grow. Plato is famous and credited for saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. I, I don't know if he said it or not. It doesn't really matter. The point is this. He was right. As a matter of fact, when we begin to think about it, the Christian life is living an examined life. It is the process of, of stepping back day by day, moment by moment, examining yourself and doing everything you can by submitting to the power of God, being empowered by the Holy Spirit in your life to live a life that glorifies and honors God moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, score by score. That's 20 years for those of you who don't know, right? I only know because I was, had to memorize Lincoln's speech four score and seven years ago. But here's the point. We continually examine ourselves. We're continually growing. That's the Christian life. It's the examined life. It's growth and holiness. Paul tells the church in Corinth, live the examined life. If I had to sum up the teaching of today, really even the teaching of the book of Corinth in some way, I'd probably do it this, and it doesn't do it total justice. I'd say this, new life in Christ means a new kind of living powered by God. Test yourself. New life in Christ means a new kind of living powered by God. Test yourself. One of the ways that we can test ourselves is asking the question, how do we see the world around us? How do we see the people around us? Because it really is true that sometimes we see those people and we begin to be filled with hate, resentment. We begin to look at the world around us and instead of seeing people created in the image of God who are in desperate need of a Savior to save all of them and all of us and me, myself, from my sin, we just get get mad at the world. Can I just tell you, Jesus didn't get mad at the world. He felt compassion towards the world. Because he's lost. he saw lost and fallen people. It is the most unbiblical thing to look at the world around and not have compassion. We should, love should fill our hearts when we look at the, the, the world around us. Especially those who don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have not experienced the grace and the mercy that we've experienced. We should desperately seek to see them know the glory of God and the Son of God. 
to see them embrace the truth of the gospel, the, the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We should be impassioned by that because they are created in God's image. And Jesus died for you, and he died for who? The world. That is the fundamental change that takes place when we live according to the power of God. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for your love for us.